Good morning. <laughs> it's great to be uh, together as we are worshiping the Lord. Let's pray briefly before we come to uh, this passage of study for us in our sermon. Lord, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. We thank you for all that we've learned from the preacher. Uh, I pray that as we spend time looking at uh, his final thoughts before the epilogue here, that you would help us to see how we can learn uh, from his observations of life under the sun and how we can continue to uh, show the, the hope and the joy and the fear of you and the world that is around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The most meaningful of advice in life isn't often delivered in the most spectacular words, but in simplistic words. And last week I shared with you guys some simple advice that I had gotten from a pastor. And basically as I asked him, as he had been serving in ministry for some time, asked him for advice on what to do as a young pastor, uh, his advice to me was simple. It, it was this, it was preach good sermons. Work really hard at preaching good sermons. Spend time with your people, and when you don't know what to do, pray. All simple things that profoundly have shaped uh, my ministry in the pastorate. And so, as we've heard from the preacher, who is like a pastor preaching to us, we have heard some simple realities, but yet complex realities. Uh, while the world around us often promises more than it can deliver, we can take hope in the things that God has given to us in a very clear, sustainable way from the clear calls of Scripture. So, as we come to this morning's passage, uh, the Westminster Confession says this. It's the very first question. What is the chief end of man? Do you guys know the answer? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. As we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has been con communicating to us how to live a full and wise life. And the wisdom of the Bible is often backwards from the wisdom of the world. Fullness and joy are not found exactly with what the world tells us in fullness and joy. We see things like politicians who fail us, who can't live up to their promises. We have things like possessions that don't actually last forever. We all have brains and maybe some intellect or maybe lack of intellect, and that doesn't always last forever. It fades. We, we have relationships, and our relationships go through ebbs and flows where they are blossoming and then breaking down. The pleasures of life are fleeting. So what is the advice that the preacher gives to us in light of all of these realities? He said that vanity is vanity, right? And when we hear the word vanity, we think of it in light of like, oh, everything is horrible. This would be the Eeyore version of the Bible. But that's not what the preacher is trying to communicate to us. He's trying to communicate to us that everything is fleeting, that it doesn't last forever, that under the sun, there's a beginning date and there's a, an ending date. And so in light of that truth, we want to live lives that are full and full of joy and full of wisdom and full of the understanding that we are not eternal. As we've come to the end of this letter, we're going to learn in the conclusion three different ideas. Last week, we started with the first one, and it was the idea of taking risks for the Lord. Living a bold life, but living in wisdom. And today, we are going to focus in on the preacher's final two messages before he lands the plane with the epilogue, and Joe's going to be preaching that next week, so I encourage 
for what he's got going in that sermon. But today we're going to focus in on the last two pieces of his observation and his exhortation to us. And that is these two ideas, rejoice and remember. Rejoice and remember. We all want to live life fully and not under the guise of regret, especially regret of the temporary things that we cannot control. So how do we do that? We do so by living with joy under the sun and remembering our God. So that's really our big idea for this morning. Live with joy under the sun and remember our God. And we're going to look at this right from the passage. So the first idea, living with joy under the sun. We get this from Ecclesiastes 11, verses 7 through 10, which reads like this. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, all that comes vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your, of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for your youth for youth and the dawn of life are all vanity. We're going to see within the structure of this passage as the author communicates to us these two ideas that there's a parallelism that's going on here. And that means that the, the two ideas are communicating some of the same truths with just opposite opposing structures. So the first idea, living with joy under the sun, begins with a truth, and then it follows up with a command. And the second idea, to remember our creator, starts with a command and then is followed up with a truth. Okay, so the first thing we learn about living with joy under the sun is a truth. And here is the truth. The light of life is sweet, but it's short. And the darkness and death are long. Again, this is simplistic truth to us. Life is short. Amen? It feels very short to us. It is just a vapor, as the scripture says in other places. The, and the point that the preacher is trying to make to us here is that the years we have on this earth are short in the summation of all things. Now, some of us may live to be, you know, what we would call an old age. How, how old is old, guys? This is a loaded question, right? So be careful, young people, especially about what you say here. But how old is old? If somebody was going to say, if you were to qualify somebody as living a full life, what would be a full life? Gene lied. <laughs> Gene, you can see Ethan after church <laughs> in the principal's office. Okay, I'm not doing any reconciliation there. You set yourself up for that, all right? <laughs> So, Gene, have at him, man. <laughs> What's a full life, guys? A hundred, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable mile marker, isn't it? To reach a hundred. Yeah. I remember being a young person and thinking, man, I can't wait until I'm 18. Then I'm going to have, like, this freedom, right? And then I turned 18, and I was like, what's happening in the world? What do I do, right? How do I sign for stuff? Like, what do you mean I have to take out student loans? What is this, right? I was totally ill-prepared for life. <laughs> it was a scary time. I thought it would be freeing, but it was extremely scary to me. So 100, that, you know, that's actually often a number that people throw about to say that would represent a full life. We all may have an idea in our minds 
You know, the, the average expectancy of the person that lives in the United States is in the high 70s. So the average person living in, in America lives to be somewhere near like 78 before their death. Okay? So 100 is like pushing that by 20-something years. That's pretty incredible, right? And, you know, when we think of the time that we have, 100 years is a lot of time. If we think of that qualification from 2023 to 1923, we're living in two very different worlds. Isn't that true? In 1923, we didn't have television. We didn't have the internet. Even in our lifetimes, if we were to be honest, right? You know, I'm a 30-something, okay? So I can remember when I was growing up in school, getting off the bus and everybody would call each other and say, hey, can you go online so that we can do chatting, right? Uh, On AOL, Instant Messenger, whatever. It's called AIM, right? That's what the cool kids called it, right? And what would happen is if you wanted to actually like go online, what did you have to do? You had to hang up your phone, ask your parents, right? Hey, can I take this up? Because that means that no telephone calls are coming in whatsoever, right? If you've ever picked up the phone when somebody's been online at that age, right? Like you pick up the phone and it does like It sounds like there's something seriously wrong happening in the world. That's because there was. <laughs> there was something seriously wrong happening at that point. But that was like a phenomenon where now, I mean, we can literally share our Wi-Fi passwords by just taking out our phone. And if you have a similar phone device, you can just hit a button and it tells somebody something that they don't even have to like pa- press in or type in. That's incredible. These are advances in technology that in the last 30 years have just been like so rampant and fast that our minds can't even begin to comprehend how different life has been in 100 years. Now, I, I do like to pick on Gene, but Gene can tell you a lot about what a full life has looked like. He has lived a great life in the Lord, and especially a great life with Joan, right? Amen, Joan? He's been, he's been okay to you? Yeah. It was when he met you that all of his life came into meaning and significance. Yeah. Uh, maybe Jesus first, and then you, but yeah. you definitely helped in that category, so... <laughs> But, you know, there's, there's much that we can look at in life and say, you know, I, I can tell you right now, some of the advice that Gene and Joan have given to me has been hold on to it because it goes very fast. Life moves really quickly. And as we get older, we start to realize this. Isn't this true? The days go by faster. Years go by quicker. Where our kids go from babies into toddlers into teenagers very quickly. Right? Teenagers are a thing. I'm just saying. Okay? It's a category. It, life moves very quickly. And so it's a truth that we can see that, yes, life is sweet. These are wonderful gifts, right? But here's the way we often talk about life under the sun. We talk about all of the good things, right? Raising children is to be a joy to us. Yet if you get a group of parents around, what do they do? They complain, right? Parenting is what? It's hard, Okay. They, like, poop a lot, they eat a lot, and they, they're mean, okay? They're, they can be mean to us, right? <laughs> and we can be mean to them. <laughs> but the reality is, is that those days go so quickly. And while we are going through them, it's easier to complain about the gifts that God gives us than it is to enjoy them. But, guys, I want you to see something right here in this passage. As he talks about life, Notice the way he talks about rejoicing in verse 9. 
Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. But know for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. He is giving us a command here. He's saying, while you have your youth, rejoice in it. Guys, it's a command. A command from the scripture to enjoy the life that we have. Not a command to complain about it, but to enjoy it. Why? Because the reality is, is that it's going to go away. Our life starts and our life ends. This season starts and this season will end. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have kids or you don't, there is a beginning and an end to all of these things. And while we have them, we better take hold of the preacher's words and enjoy them while they're in front of us. The words here, rejoice. You know, we hear things like, let your heart cheer you. These are things we hear in the world. Isn't that true? Like, live your best life. Or the infamous, way back in the 2010s, right? YOLO, right? You only live once, right? And the idea here is, like, people use that message and they say, you only live once, have as much fun as you can. But in the emphasis of fun, they often are trying to say, regardless of the rules, regardless of what is good for you, regardless of what is happening. But here, the preacher actually doesn't give us that qualification. He says, enjoy your life and recognize you're going to stand before the judge. And, you know, I was thinking about this. When we think of Judgment Day, it's, it's real easy for us to think about all the ways that we can sin against God, right? I mean, this morning, right, I, every, every morning when my cat starts meowing, you guys know how I feel about my cat, right? He stirs up the wrath of God within me, right? And... <laughs> I get angry at his meows because it's like incessant, like feed me. I've never eaten in my entire life. No one cares. And it's like, dude, you're like 14 pounds. You don't have any issues, okay? You are well fed. Stop crying. Right? But here's the thing. It's like as we're going through this, as, I, as I'm seeing these things, as I'm complaining about what, what's happening around me with these surroundings, it, it, the other end of that, outside of my sin, there's a command where I'm going to have to stand before the Lord as judge and say, I've enjoyed my life. Not only will we take account for the ways we've wronged the Lord, we're going to take account for the ways that we've enjoyed him and enjoyed the gifts that he has given to us. This is the idea of stewardship. So with the time that you have, with the relationships that you have, with the people that you get to hang around, you and I will stand before the judge and say, God, Here's how we've wronged you, and here are the things that you've given to us in life, and here's how we've used them, either for your glory or to our own detriment. So the idea of judgment isn't just the negative side of dealing with our sin. It's also, in a light, the positive way that we have to stand before God and account for the good things that he has given to us. That's why he says here, find cheer in the days of your life. Walk in the delight of your eyes. But know that we're going to stand before the Lord. Look at verse 10. It says, remove vexation from your heart. Vexation is kind of a funny word, isn't it? It made me think of like the 1600s immediately when I was reading this. I was thinking of like the Puritans. I feel like Richard Baxter would have said the word vexation. Pretty sure he did from his writings. But 
the word vexation here, what it means is it's this Hebrew word, kahath, that can be rendered sorrow, grief, frustration, provocation, anxiety, emotional stress, to suffer, to be vexed, or to be provoked to anger. It's used elsewhere in Ecclesiastes to carry about the idea of the futility of our self-sufficiency, thinking that we don't need God. That leads to what? Frustration and irritation. And it's also used to show how uh, we should not be disillusioned with the gladness of our hearts that's entrenched in bitterness, but that we should find joy in the Lord. So it's this idea of like finding something that's extremely frustrating and irritating and like promises all of this weight that it actually doesn't deliver, right? So, you know, you think of this like if you were trying to like learn a different language, right? Anybody done this? Like uh, Greek and Hebrew, uh, still giving me hard time, right? I, I remember in school I took Spanish. Right? My wife was one of those weirdos that did Spanish and French. Right? She was a language diva. <laughs> okay. As you learn languages, it can be really frustrating when you're trying to communicate an idea, but you can't come up with the words that communicate it. So the preacher's saying here, remove vexation from your heart. Remove the frustration of things that don't deliver. He says, put away pain from your body, for your youth and the dawn of life are vanity. What he says here, these are tall orders for people. Because really, what he's getting at with vexation is this idea that we can have something that irritates us so much that it makes us anxious. Have you guys been there, right, where you're trying to learn something and you can't get it and it just, it drives you so crazy that your frustration turns from frustration into fear and then that fear turns into anxiety and that anxiety just seems like it just won't go away. Every time the subject comes up, every time the idea comes up, you just are built up with this anxious sense of like not knowing what's next. We live in a world where right now mental health self-diagnosis is rampant. People on TikTok are claiming that they have self-diagnosed disorders like autism and anxiety and OCD and, I mean, you can turn anywhere on social media, and the conversation of the day is something to do with mental health. And I do think that there are mental health struggles in the day. I'm not trying to communicate that I don't think that any of these things exist. But I do think we have an epidemic at hand where people claim more than what may actually be there. And, in fact, what it actually leads to is more of our actual anxiety. If you remember from our earlier sermons, we learned that 70% of America in 2023 identifies as unsatisfied with their living. 70% of Americans have at their heart some sort of dissatisfaction for the way that they are living their life right now. That is a huge number. We're anxious about things like money. We're anxious about things like relationships. We're anxious about our status. We're anxious about our jobs. We're anxious about just about anything that we could be anxious about. If we could find it, we will find it. 
Now, this isn't to say that if you're struggling with anxiety right now that you're foolish and that you just need to get over it. Right? That's not what the preacher is saying by remove your vexation. Rather, Scripture calls us, I want you to see this, in a number of ways to not be anxious but to cast our cares upon the Lord. Like in Philippians 4, verse 6. Notice this, it says, don't be anxious about anything, right? People could stop reading that there, and it'd be true from the Bible, but it'd be unhelpful. Notice what Paul continues to say. He says, but in everything, by prayer and in supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So how do we deal with anxiety and a rampantly anxious world? We, we follow the scriptures. We first Pray to the Lord. Notice what, what the author says here. Pray to God with what? With supplication and thanksgiving. The idea of praying with supplication is asking God to meet your needs and, and those things that are around you. Often anxiety comes from a place that's set in a lack. We, something doesn't seem right. It seems out of place. There's confusion and chaos to it. And so in our prayer of the Lord dealing with our anxiety, we say, Lord, I don't understand this. There may not be a clear answer to this, but please meet this. And the second remedy that Paul gives to dealing with our anxiety here is he says, pray with thanksgiving. Here's a really great practice if you want to find yourself feeling a little bit less anxious. Take a quick inventory of your heart of all the things that the Lord's given to you. All the things you can be thankful of. I, even simple things, right? Like right now, Joe mentioned something in the giving time that we overlook that's profound. We have the ability to gather in a space where there's a PA system, where we can hear each other clearly, we can sit in comfort. There's things to be thankful for. There are Christians that are gathering right now that are running for their lives. Right now. And we're here. And yeah, we're feeling a sense of persecution. Right? The world is hostile towards Christians right now. That's, that's true. But our hostility, the hostility we face here in America is different than that of Christians who are gathering in China. That's not to say one's better than the other or one's worse than the other, but to say there's much for us to be thankful of. And so when we stop and we take measure of the things the Lord has given to us, like a church family, a building that's warm and welcome, a, a place to be able to get into a car where you can actually turn it on and, and you can have gas and you can get from location to location, to know that you have a roof over your head. Guys, many of the realities that we live in every day here in America are not the realities of the world. So there's a lot to be thankful for. And so when we're feeling anxious, we can pray to the Lord asking him to meet our needs, and we can stop and praise him with thankfulness of all the things that he's given to us. And I can guarantee you this, that if you try, at least in your anxious moments, to stop, genuinely stop, and think of the ways that the Lord has provided for you and has been good to you, I, I can guarantee you're going to feel a little bit less anxious after you've praised him for the gifts he has given to you. Now, it's not a perfect formula every time, but just try it. And there's a second passage that I think is really helpful to us. 
in light of our anxiety, that Paul tells us, don't be anxious. Pray to the Lord. But there's something so comforting about the words of Jesus here in Matthew 11. Jesus says to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In our anxious moments, the best solution is to run to Jesus. To hear his invitation. Guys, have you ever thought this? Have you ever thought God just doesn't want to hear my anxiety? Now, I like, there are times, I, I can't say I'm not an anxious person, because I do have some anxious moments. But overwhelmingly, I'd say probably more often than not, I don't deal with anxiety. But there are moments where I'm anxious. Now, my wife can say that she's anxious. <laughs> that that is something that like she feels a lot. Right? And as I've been learning to love her well, I've been learning to try to say things to her that encourage her in her anxiety that don't just start off like, hey, just get over it. Right? She can tell by my facial reaction at times when she gets going about something that's making her anxious, sometimes I like want to say things, but I, I do one of these, I go, ah. okay. <laughs> and we have that like repetition that might happen four or five times within a minute <laughs> where I'm, I'm trying to hold my tongue from saying something to try to like offer up a solution. And I, I've learned one key phrase in helping my wife and her anxiety. Babe, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. And there are times where I go, how can I tell her it's going to be okay? I don't know. I don't know what she's facing right now. I can't comprehend the weight of what she is emotionally distressed about right now. But I do know this reality. If I can't comprehend it, I hear the invitation of Jesus who says, come to me. So I can with confidence tell her, babe, it's going to be okay. Why? Because Jesus says that if we come to him, that we will be relieved of our weariness, our burdens, that as we take upon ourselves his yoke, that he gives something to us that is easy, that's light, that in it brings rest for our souls. So I may not understand it perfectly, but I know that I'm not just trying to tell her, babe, it's going to be okay just because I said so. It's going to be okay because Jesus said so. And he's faithful. He meets us where we are. So more than just a command to pray, brothers and sisters, hear the invitation of Jesus, come. And so many of us are feared, like, are overwhelmed by our fear, overwhelmed even in a way, this is going to be hard for you to hear, but by our pride of our fear that we don't come to Jesus when we're anxious. Brothers and sisters, rather than feeling like God doesn't want to hear you, or that he can't relate. We need to hear these realities from Scripture. Hebrews 4 tells us we have an empathetic high priest who's able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. All of them. He took on flesh. He knows how to deal with all of them. Guys, if you just open up the Psalms, you hear the cries of David, where he says, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? What's going on? My enemies are overwhelming me. Where are you? Guys, these are ways the scripture shows us God's not afraid to hear from us about our anxiety. 
He wants us to run to him. How can we live with joy? We can live with joy knowing that even when everything doesn't make sense, there's someone who makes sense. The Lord Jesus. You need to think of pain and suffering, even as that's mentioned in verse 10. You guys know Joni Erickson Tata? She's the first person that came to my mind. She's a quadriplegic. And I think she was like 18 years old when she had an accident where she was doing a cliff jumping with a group of friends. And she was trying to jump into water. And she slipped and she tripped and she fell flat on her back. And she literally became disabled from the neck down. Joni Erickson Tata may be the single representation to me that I've seen in a real-life flesh example of someone who takes suffering with joy. She has every reason to say, I wish my life would be different. I wish that this accident never happened. Every day, guys, she needs somebody to help her brush her teeth. She needs somebody to help her get dressed. She needs somebody to get her into a wheelchair. She needs help even maneuvering her wheelchair at times. Yet she would say she would never trade any of it because she's found her contentment in Christ. She has every reason to be discontent with the world and discontent with her life, but she's not. Her physical pain has showed her her dependence on the Lord. That Jesus is kind. Somebody who fell off a cliff can say, Jesus is kind. That she has contentment in her relationship with Christ. She knows that Jesus loves her. And that is enough to say that. Guys, we have a command from Scripture to rejoice in the moments of life. Even when there's pain and suffering and realities that make us anxious, what we have in front of us is going to go away, and we need to enjoy it while it's in front of us. Because we're not guaranteed it forever. And then we come to our second idea. Remember your creator. Living a life that is full and pleasing to the Lord means living it with joy under the sun, taking hold of the gifts of life that God gives us, but it also means remembering who is the creator. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. There's a shift that's going on here in Ecclesiastes. As the preacher moves from noticing what he says in, in chapter 11, verse 7, under the sun, he now moves to this command where he says, remember God. Remember God. And he specifically calls him the creator. Ecclesiastes is not a letter that's addressed to Israel specifically. Ecclesiastes is a letter that's written by the preacher to people generally. This is his life work that he wants all people to know about. This is news he's proclaiming to everyone who will listen. And so he calls God the creator, his name Elohim. He is the one who speaks and brings creation into existence. And so as he's writing these things, he's trying to help us to shift from what may be the reality right in front of us underneath this sun to looking above to the person of God. 
And what does he say? He says, remember. Remember your creator. Remembering in scripture is a profound call. And it's not a call just to mentally recall what we know. It's a call to action. One commentator says this. He says, the context of this passage in the entire book implies that, uh, that action subsequent to mental activity must be undertaken. Readers are challenged to remember, not for the sake of reminiscing, but for the purpose of revolutionizing their lives, bringing them into conformity with God's eternal and sovereign plan. So he's saying remembering isn't just recalling or reminiscing. This isn't just thinking of the good old days. This is now leading into action. Action where we, by submit to the work of God in us and our relationship with him. So what does it mean to actually put this into action? What are we trying to remember? We need to remember, Scripture calls us to remember God's promises. It calls us to remember his command, to remember his deliverance, his faithfulness, his redemption, his love, his omniscience, his sovereignty, his return, his restoration. We often live like God is the afterthought or the add-on of our lives, but what uh, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us is that instead we need to live with the constant reminder, the most important emphasis of us being that we're known by God and we are seeking to know him. Like in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How do we remember the creator? Notice what Paul says to the Colossians. Seek the things that are above and set your mind on things that are above. This fully embraces what the preacher is trying to drive to us in Ecclesiastes 12.1. That remembering isn't just an act of reminiscing. It's an act which we seek and we set upon the Lord. We seek the Lord and we set upon the Lord. So he starts with a command, but then he gives us a truth. And the truth is found in verses 2 through 8. Where he says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain... In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders seize because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now when we read these, we see the poetry right off the bat. These are very poetic words that we can grasp onto, images that are supposed to portray something to us. And really where we see the driving factor come home is right there in verse 5. 
Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. The preacher's coming back to this reality that we are not guaranteed forever. So he uses a couple of pictures to help us. The first, the darkening of sun, light, and moon. The coming clouds of rain. What is this supposed to represent? It represents to us the darkening of our sight as we age. The things are becoming dimmer as life comes to its conclusion. Or like in verses 3 through 5, where there's this day of impending terror. <laughs> we see doors are shut. There's sounds that are going on. There's fear. In verse 5, the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. Uh, I thought that that was kind of interesting because, you know, you, you pick up like almond milk and it has a picture of like an almond tree on it and white flowers, right? And I was like immediately bringing my mind to that. And as I was reading the commentators were saying, no, this is actually a picture of white hair in the old age. And I thought, huh, okay, that's kind of an interesting picture. The, the grasshopper picture to me, I thought that was interesting as well. A grasshopper that drags itself along, there's this stiffness that comes with the grasshopper as it's not working properly as it was supposed to, right? So the stiffness of life, the aches and pains of getting older. But all of this drives home to the end of verse 5 right there. There's an eternal home. There's a day that's been appointed for us to die where we'll stand before God and what we've held is precious like these silver cords and golden bowls and the pitchers that have been shattered in verse verse 6. It all comes to an end. What does it end in? Verse 7, dust returns to the earth. We should be recalling God's language to Adam and the curse. It says, out of the dust you were formed, to the dust you shall return. Now, some people have asked me, like, through time, like, my take on funeral arrangements and when people die, right? They go, should you be cremated? Should you not be cremated? Because the New Testament talks about resurrection bodies. So the preacher doesn't mention anything about resurrection hope here, right? He does mention that there's some sort of reality where we're going to be with God and there's an eternal home for us. Uh, but we wouldn't get necessarily the idea that like our physical bodies would be important to us, like we may pull from 1 Corinthians like 15 and the idea of a resurrected body. Here's my take on it. Whether you're cremated or not, the Lord is capable of taking what was dust and forming it into what he's made. So whatever take you want to take on that, okay? Uh, ultimately, I think the Lord's got the answers. There's all sorts of positions, but I think it's important that the, the text says in Genesis, it says here in Ecclesiastes, even what we see in 1 Corinthians 15 and into Revelation 20, that no matter where we are, the Lord's going to call us and he's going to take us and he's going to form us and we're going to be with him. So to dust we came from, and from dust we, or from dust we came from, and to dust we shall return. And what does he end with? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Right as he started, he ends. Vanity of vanities. The idea, again, we are fleeting. Life is going. So what are the greatest calls, the greatest piece of advice that we can give to anybody? Life is short. Live it well for the Lord. Things are going to fade. Rejoice while you have them. And the most important news for us, friends, is to take 
chapter 12, verse 1, and hold on to that with everything that we have. To remember God. Because under the sun, it looks like everything is fleeting, but there's an eternal reality with God and in knowing him. So my simple advice from the book of Ecclesiastes for us as a church is to remember nothing is eternal here. This church building, we know that it's temporary. It's burned down twice. The barn is leaning. We know that thing's temporary. It's going to fall at some point. We are the members of this church. Now, Satan's tried to take us out. Back in 2010, there were five people, and it looked like this place was going to shut down. But the Lord, through the preaching of the gospel, has built this place up. As we've added more people to our numbers today, more people to our family today, while life goes, and we all won't be here, and even Hebron Church of Hope, as a local church, won't be here forever, we will have the church of Jesus Christ, all the saints who have gathered together. That's going to be our church in eternity. We're singing the praises of God with all of the saints who have believed in him. We have something to look forward to, something that is eternal. So this temporary picture that's here points us to that eternal reality. We'll be with Jesus. So it's temporary, rejoicing. It's a gift to be here together. It's a gift to be known by the Creator. It's a gift that we get to live life together. Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us wisdom as we take the supper today. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are holy, that we are not. And though we're not, you call us to be holy in Christ. And so by faith we trust that you will help us to take what you've shown us in your word today, how to live with joy, how to remember you. We ask God, trusting, knowing that you will empower us to live out these commands in a way that brings you glory. We thank you for the simple advice of Ecclesiastes that has shown us the complexity of our hearts and how life often doesn't have clear answers, at least with what we can find in and of ourselves. And so while we live under the sun, we pray that you'd help us to look to you, to look to you for our hope, for our significance, for meaning, for life, for our joy. May we look to you in our pain, in our suffering, and in everything in between, God. May our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our actions be so set on you that all those around us could see what you are doing, who you are, and that they glorify you as you use us for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.